From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're back with 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. And on the show today, we have Yehuda Kersner. He is the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. And he joins us today. Yehuda, thank you so much for making time to be on the show with us. Well, thanks for having me. So for people who are not uh, familiar with the Shalom Hartman Institute, can you give us some background into what it is kind of work that you do? Sure. So uh, the Shalom Hartman Institute is a unique Jewish organization in that we are kind of two organizations in one. We are a think tank for the Jewish people with about 60, 70 scholars in North America and in Israel working collaboratively on major questions facing the Jewish people and producing ideas and new thinking and writing and research uh, on those issues. And we are also a, an educational organization so that unlike, you know, some other think tanks whose job is to produce policy papers, we take the work of our scholars and turn it into educational programs for Jewish leaders in North America. And my colleagues do so uh, in Israel as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, our, our big belief is that the Jewish people has always been carried throughout our complicated history by the power of our ideas and the quality of our leaders. And so we spend our time uh, investing in both. It must be an absolutely fascinating challenge with uh, the Jewish world as it is uh, right now. And there's so many different elements uh, that I would sort of love to to get into. But maybe first um, get a broad in, uh, element from you. In, in some respects, you could say that as Jews were living through the best part of history, certainly in the last 2,000 years, maybe more. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree. And, and uh, we talk about this a lot, that the, the Jewish people have a lot of challenges today, but most of them, many of them, can be characterized as challenges of abundance, uh, especially for, for North American Jews where I'm located. I live in New York. And certainly for our Israeli colleagues, these two projects of North America and Israel are really extraordinary in terms of the success that they represent for for the Jewish people uh, in terms of the measure of affluence, influence, power, and privilege that the Jewish people have at our disposal. And so the many of the challenges that we're facing, you know, of course, there's still global anti-Semitism. It actually still is on the rise. There's still uh, aspects of Israel that are uh, quite vulnerable. But many of the challenges that we face here in North America are challenges like, can Judaism... Can Judaism endure for many Jews within a marketplace of ideas and identities where people can choose simply not to be Jewish anymore? So that's a it's a it's a different type of challenge than the Jewish people would have faced in almost all of our uh, all of our history elsewhere. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily easier to answer, right? Because you're uh, the fact that you're competing against other good options that people have in terms of their their lives and their choices. It, you know, it just puts it, it puts pressure on us differently to respond to the to the Jewish people's challenges today than it would have been 70, 80 uh, or a thousand years ago. Now, you, you kind of started on, 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 on the thing that Jews often start with where when it comes to challenges is the issue of anti-Semitism and really the growth on the left and the right. Uh, do you think that as Jews, we're responding well as Jews, because often it, it seems to me that, that when we deal with anti-Semitism, it's often through the frame of who's my tribe, not Jewishly, but politically, uh, and that we think the, the anti-Semitism is on the other side of it. 
Yeah, no, I don't think we're doing particularly well as a Jewish community. You know, I could speak mostly to to my experience about the Jewish community in America right now. Uh, Anti-Semitism has basically become a partisan issue for American Jews, as with virtually every other issue in a highly partisan moment. So uh, most American Jews who are exercised around anti-Semitism are exercised uh, about the anti-Semitism that can be found on the other side of the political aisle. So if you if you vote for the Republican Party, um, you, you tend to be more concerned by anti-Semitism on the left. And if you vote for the Democratic Party, uh, it's in reverse. And this is a dangerous uh, it's a dangerous moment for Jews when we we turn anti-Semitism into something uh, something that's partisan. And uh, it's one of the things that we're thinking about uh, constantly today. Um, if I could if I could push one step further on this, I think, you know, increasingly there are two there are two big theories in the world right now about what makes the Jewish people safe. And anti-Semitism is the inverse of that, of course. So, so one big theory is that what makes the Jewish people safe is a strong nation state, and that's the state of Israel, and that anyone who would question or criticize that nation state is essentially making Jews unsafe. And there's another rising idea that what makes Jews safe are actually the opposite of the nation state, which is, which is, or the, at least at the opposite of an ethnic nation state, which is multi-faith, multi-ethnic coalitions, uh, non-ethnic democracies, and that anyone who would question that by advancing nationalism is making Jews uh, unsafe. And, um, and the more that those two visions for the world are totally opposite to each other, it's going to have the consequence that anti that how we respond to anti-Semitism, what we're scared of, is going to just look completely opposite to people on different sides of the political aisle. It is an interesting point. I, I, I think in the last certainly four years, I guess, because of the, some of the political issues in, in America that we've seen, there's been, as first, certainly the first time that I've ever seen, a mainstreaming of anti-Zionism as an idea, right? There are people who certainly are post-Zionist, but definitely anti-Zionist, who are writing and in, in a theory and idea-based form in mainstream uh, media and, and, and political parts of, of American society. I, at least that's my perspective as a, as a Jew living in South Africa, watching the stuff as it unfolds in Israel and, and in America. I mean, would you agree with that assessment? And, and if you do, uh, where would you say that the sudden push for, for anti-Zionism is coming from? I'm not sure I totally agree that the, the demographics around anti-Zionism has increased all that much uh, in the past 10 years, but the visibility uh, of those positions has increased significantly. Um, you know, there's a, for instance, there's a lot, of, a lot of noise around basically two members of the U.S. Congress who are openly anti-Zionist, uh, and, and borderline at times anti-Semitic in their anti-Zionism. But you're talking about two members of Congress out of 435. And, and in truth, there actually have been, uh, politicians, congressmen and women over the past 70 years who have embodied the same political positions. Um, so why is it that we hear more about those really marginal voices, uh, today than we did 10 or 15 years ago? And that, that, I think that has more to do with media and the way that ideas can get amplified and in some ways blown out of proportion than it does to the real change in the intellectual atmosphere. Now, without a doubt, anti-Zionism around the world has been rising. That's been the case for, uh, since 1967, especially since 1982 and the Lebanon War, and then, you know, shoots up after the Intifadas. Um, of course, that as a pronounced political position around the world that's rising, but it actually has not become a more muscular political position in the American political context. But I do think that, you know, 
Twitter and um, other other types of media, really what they do is they flatten the power structures about which ideas are quote unquote valid or important and which of them can actually get a lot of noise. In some ways, the more marginal political position you have, the more uh, the more social media tools are actually in service of that position because with with no budget but a good social media savvy, you can take an idea and and actually and push it out into the world. Whereas you know traditional organizations that have hierarchies and 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 where you have to go through processes of um, approvals of did we get the language exactly right are by definition much slower and they seem much clunkier. So I, you know. I think the American Jewish community is wrestling with uh, certainly louder anti-Zionist voices uh, in our midst. It's hard to tell whether they are actually uh, a lot more powerful than they were a decade or, or two decades ago. I think that your point there is interesting around in, in our midst, right? Someone like, uh, you know, let's take Peter Baynard, for example, right? He he now writes for Jewish Currents, which is an estab- like an established uh, sort of anti-Zionist newspaper and for the New York Times. Would you say that that is an unusual position or something that's always existed within the American Jewish community? I think part of what you're, I think part of what you're flagging is that is, it, to me is not as much, again, the numbers are, the numbers are still small. Um, I think what you're noticing, which I think is a little bit of a different trend, is that um, there is a stronger anti-Zionist voice that is emerging from within uh, environments of Jewish education. In other words, as opposed to anti-Zionism being a kind of marginal fringe position by people who are disconnected to the Jewish community and its institutions, you do have more people kind of emerging from Jewish education, Jewish summer camp. You know, the individual you mentioned, Peter, belongs to an Orthodox synagogue. His kids go to a Jewish day school. And, um, and, and, and from that world, a growing number of people who are saying the product of my Jewish education is to be openly critical, uh, past past the threshold of what might have been thought respectability in a previous generation, and that that's an expression of my Jewish identity. I think that's a comp, I think that is a complicated idea. Uh, but again, I'm trying to, I guess I'm trying to parse the distinction between where are we seeing a kind of ideas trends within the Jewish community versus kind of writ large within the American public. And I think that the, the, how you respond to those different things is, is quite different, whether it's inside the Jewish community or whether it's actually part of the American political reality. So let's move then to the to the political reality. Uh, you know, I, I take your point that there are two members of the squad that are openly anti-Zionist, and uh, and and you know we shouldn't get too excited about that one way or another. But the next ring around that, right, the the the, the squad plus um, is is might not be anti-Zionist, but there's a kind of sense in which Jews are now having to wrestle with. Um, and again, this is we are just talking on the left wing, and I. I you know, it is also a right-wing phenomenon, but Jews, it's different on the right. Jews are having to wrestle with kind of progressives in the American system uh, and what they think about Israel. I mean, I was very interested in your perspective, for example, uh, on the Georgia Senate race with uh, Senator Warnock, right, who signed a letter calling Israel an apartheid state. I mean, we were, we found that letter pretty horrific here in South Africa because the people who went on that tour with him ended up passing important BDS resolutions in our country. Um, but your view was that, you know, we shouldn't cast this guy out. We shouldn't make Israel an election issue in Georgia, which I understand. But but you still seem to be dealing with someone who maybe doesn't look like a traditional Jewish ally. Um, and, and I imagine that that might be a bit of a, an unusual experience 
for for Jews on the left, certainly in, in, in an American context. There's a few things that I think we have to unpack about that kind of story. One is the issues that the Jewish community cares about, which na- which today include Zionism and support for the state of Israel. The Jewish community likes to think, and I, you know, I, I'm of this, I, I'm of this community as well, that our commitments are self-evident and intuitive. That a person who shares uh, a broadly progressive, pro-democracy view of the world is going to simply re- kind of logically and intuitively come to the conclusion to support the state of Israel in its conflict, in enduring conflict with the Palestinians. So that's not obvious anymore. It's it's not obvious for most liberal Zionists. And those of us who identify as liberal Zionists work really hard to advance a vision of Israel that is better um, and that advances a vision of a liberal Zionism here in the diaspora that can uh, that can, you know, make sense of the things that are Israel, about Israel that are problematic. I think the Jewish community for a couple of generations has basically assumed that its democratic and progressive allies are just, you know, working through those same calculations on our, on their own. And I think that the Warnock case is a good example of unless you're actively making the case to your allies uh, for your Zionism, they may not come to the same conclusions that you come to. This is all, by the way, laced through with uh, with the whole question of the activity or lack thereof of American Jews in, in the work of racial justice. And by the same token, I think there's a lot of American Jews who for two generations have basically said, well, our ancestors were involved with the civil rights movement in America, so the black community knows that we're basically their allies. And I think on both ends, there's a lot of suspicion of why are you not my obvious ally in ways that I want you to do that. So when I look at a case like Warnock, who... Um, you know, my main point was we should not allow Israel to become um, a partisan uh, a partisan wedge. Um, but the, the the real the real objective is how do we how do we start a conversation with people who maybe are political allies in a whole bunch of issues, um, but who are not intuitively or obviously coming to those conclusions on their own? I just don't think it's realistic for the state of Israel to expect, um, especially with it, you know with its current government and and it, and its and the path that it set out for itself, that everybody's just can obviously come to the conclusion to support it. So I think that it means that we have to do the work as opposed to being, uh, as opposed to assuming that, um, those who don't kind of intuitively support the positions that we want to support are therefore our, our enemies. That just seems like bad politics to me. We're talking to president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, Yehuda Kozner, and uh, he is joining us all the way from New York. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back just after this. This is the new blue review with Benji Schulman. You're back with 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review, talking to Yehuda Kersner today, president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, discussing the big ideas uh, in the Jewish world right at the moment. Now, Yehuda, I want to get away from some of the American politics for a minute and, and ask you about one of the groundbreaking projects that the Shalom Hartman Institute uh, has been involved in, which is very difficult but nonetheless very necessary discussions with the Muslim world um, around interfaith, around Israel, around all sorts of things. And, and for many years running a really quite a groundbreaking project of getting Jews and Muslims uh, into discussions without the Kumbaya element in some respects, I think, uh, and really mm-hmm. asking hard questions. And it's been, uh, in some respects, quite a controversial uh, program, uh, but I would probably imagine some interesting results. And what, what I really wanted to ask you is, what do you think the effect of the Abraham Accords might be on this kind of activity? Uh, now that we have kind of a, I don't want to say that 
other countries in the Middle East are not legitimate Muslim partners, but there they kind of is a, a drive around a certain perception of Islam within the UAE, for example, that you don't find in, say, Turkey or, or Jordan or, or Egypt, which have traditionally been some of the Muslim countries that, that Israel has dealt with. Do you think that, that this, the Abraham Accords will try and will, will cause an opening of that discussion at all? But I think, I think, I think unquestionably the answer is yes. There's already been, uh, extraordinary amounts of tourism, even during a pandemic, uh, by Israelis, uh, Israelis going to the Emirates and, and we can anticipate probably, uh, in the reverse as well. So th- on one hand, we're opening up a pretty significant vista of, um, of Muslim majority countries who ha- are achieving processes of normalization that I don't think any, any of us would have anticipated even five years ago. And I think that that's to be celebrated. Uh, certainly the Emirates, Morocco, and we'll see other countries as well. The question, the question that lingers before us is whether, uh, whether the very significant divide in the Arab and Muslim world between kind of team Iran versus team Saudi Arabia is gonna, m- What that does is it means that it's very hard to imagine that um, globally the Jews and the Muslims are going to be in conversation with each other because the more, for instance, that Israel opens up this relationship with uh, countries like the Emirates, the more a whole other uh, segment of the Muslim world um, gets angrier and angrier at the Jewish people. Um, Certainly that's the case in our work with with American Muslims. it's been extraordinarily successful and and quite moving to build relationships with with many American Muslims. Uh, we've argued, and and many of our colleagues agree that this is what America is one of the few places in the world where we should be able to build healthy relationships between American Jews and American Muslims, uh, precisely because it's so hard in other parts of the world. But but because there are also deep antipathy among the Muslim Muslim community in North America against countries like uh, the Emirates and, and countries like like Saudi Arabia. And now Israel is kind of connected to those countries very differently. It actually raises the hostility by by some of those critics uh, against those Muslims and, and against us as an institution for for trying to do this kind of work. So um, so I do think we're we're seeing totally new possibilities. But like everything else, it kind of lives along a partisan divide. And so progress on one direction simply polarizes you from people on the other side of the aisle. I'm talking even though at a more deeper level. I mean, do you think that the, the Muslims who do want to engage the state of Israel and the Jewish community as a whole. I mean, do you think that they're going to have to rethink some of the theological positions in order to do that? Or, or, or is that black too far? I don't think it's about think, rethinking theological positions. A lot of what we have, um, a lot of what we've encountered in, in our conversations over the years with American Muslims are some, you know, in some cases, just some prejudiced uh, obstacles within educational systems. The, the, you know, the, let me, let me try to, be more concrete. One of the most, one of the simplest ideas that we try to convey in our educational programs, uh, when we talk to American Muslims and actually when we talk to Jews is that the Jewish people are a people and not quote unquote merely a religion. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a radical idea for Jews also, uh, for many Jews of the West who think of Judaism as a religion to, to have to really struggle with what it means to be a nation, even though we don't look or behave historically like most other nations or peoples. For Muslims, this is a, this is a, a really striking recognition because once you acknowledge that the Jewish people are a people, then you start to kind of go down the road of, well, peoplehood includes the right to self-determination and possibly the right to sovereignty, um, uh, and, and statehood. And, and that shift 
In some of our educational programs, we spend a week or two weeks on that. What does it mean to to actually wrestle with the Jewish people as a people as opposed to a religion? Now, it it doesn't mean you have to reread the Quran or the Hadith in order to come to that conclusion, but you might have to unmake some of the biases and assumptions that are carried around about the Jewish people and about Zionism, which is widely portrayed in many educational settings around the world as being a 20th century colonialist project, or it's oftentimes portrayed as like atonement by Europe for what Europe did to the Jews by giving them a piece of the Middle East. So this is an opportunity to actually narrate our story in the way we understand it. And I've found whether I'm studying with Jews or whether I'm studying with people of other faiths, simply the activity of, of both telling your own story and allowing another person to tell their own other, their story, just that activity of narrating and listening is educationally transformative and we don't do enough of it. And I want us to do more. Now, getting even bigger than interfaith and, and politics is is just the real crisis of the moment, which is which is Corona, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think Jewish institutions have been hit in similar ways in some cases, but quite differently in in others. And, and I'm kind of wondering from you: Do you think that our institutions have been up to the task of dealing with this particular pandemic? Uh, and and number two. What do you think are some of the the trend lines that we're going to start seeing once once this thing does eventually go away that may have a, a lasting impact in terms of our our our, uh, our structure as as a Jewish community? So I can speak uh, really just to American Jewish institutions. I don't know how adaptable what I'll have to say is to, to other parts of the world. Um, I was I was very nervous and very skeptical at the outset of the pandemic about our our community's capacity to hold through what we were about to face. Uh, I assumed that many Jewish institutions that were already teetering uh, would would collapse throughout this time. Uh, I assumed that there would be and hoped that there would be some sort of process of mergers and acquisitions to to reconsolidate the Jewish community. I was, I was quite nervous. Uh, that was wrong, I, and I and I and I realized that now. Number one, some of the some of the kind of least sexy Jewish institutions on the Jewish map, those who hold up the Jewish social safety net. Uh, were enormously influential and did incredible work, whether it was kind of the, the basic work of, of coronavirus testing and uh, public health and now vaccination processes, uh, you know, keeping people, keeping people who, who were destitute fed, uh, was, was an extraordinary success, uh, in the Jewish educational world. The Jewish day schools in, in America are proving themselves to be the anomaly in the American educational system, because they managed to basically open up uh, largely across the board in ways that that almost no other school system was able to do. And we're at the vanguard of showing people how you could open up uh, schools over the course of this year. And the, the other big trend was philanthropy stepped up. And and the reason that's so significant is that in the 2008 collapse, which was the last great crisis that that the world and the Jewish community faced, uh, philanthropy really failed, uh, kind of bailed out, partly because the philanthropists had taken such a hit in the collapse of the markets, but um, but they didn't really step up and say, okay, how do we make sure that the institutional infrastructure that we're meant to support doesn't also collapse? And so the whole system took a huge hit. And here, uh, Jewish philanthropy uh, put a lot more money into the system, became much more flexible with its grantees. Uh, there was much more collaboration between the funding sector and so in some ways, the Jewish community comes out 
weirdly stronger uh, as a result of this pandemic. But, but you know, what I think we can expect, though, is even if things didn't teeter and fall during this time, there's a lot in the Jewish American, organized American Jewish community that has been undergoing um, some major changes over the last generation. And this is, we're going to look back in five years and say that the pandemic did have an influence on, on which organization thrived and which ones didn't. As one colleague put to me recently, uh, the, the weaker institutions got weaker, stronger institutions got stronger. Um, so they didn't necessarily collapse as a result of the pandemic, but it was probably one step in that direction. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, the real interesting stuff of what we're going to learn from this is uh, the ways in which, you know, digital makes re, re, makes us rethink what is local, right? I I didn't hear from you all in South Africa before the pandemic, but once you're on Zoom with everybody, like, what's the big deal? You know, everybody's available to you um, as long as you can manage the time zones. So I think that in the in the North American Jewish community, we're going to see a lot of recalibration of what needs to be local and what can be national. And hopefully we can use that as a means of actually strengthening the Jewish community. I think that's an absolutely fascinating idea and probably the one we're going to have to end on. Uh, Yehuda, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I know you guys do a lot of work. Uh, a fascinating article on Purim that I just read. If people want to access your material, where can they do it? Yeah, our website is uh, www.shalomhartman.org. Uh, we uh, we put a lot of resources there. We also have been hosting a whole bunch of symposia live uh, live and recorded online. So um, so people who want to join and and to consume. Uh, an ever amount uh, of content that's being created responsive to the Jewish year, to the crises that we face, to the current moment. All of that is publicly available and a lot of it is, is just online and free. And we'd ha- love to have more people um, from outside of the U.S. participate in our learning. Yehuda Kersner, president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Thank you so much for joining us on the new Blue Review and good luck with the rest of your work. Thanks so much. There you go. We'll be back just after the break.